Well, peace be with you. Uh, so we are continuing our journey through um, uh, First and Second Thessalonians, and I'm really excited about this uh, service. Oh my goodness, this is really awkward. Oh my goodness, Some, someone has come in here with a with a sign that says something. This is totally unexpected. Um, this is so disruptive. What? And Susie Sellers, one of our elders of all people. Susie, I can't believe this. Um, let, let her, I don't know what the sign says. Sorry. Um, the end is nigh. Okay, the end. Okay, so, so Susie, you're doing this to remind us really that, you know, Jesus is coming back uh, to return as judge and savior. That's why you're having this sign? Yes. That's very important, and you want people to be ready. Yes. Okay, well, uh, I, I, I personally think there's probably better ways to communicate that to me, than but, I, but I appreciate your passion, okay? Now, when I see a sign like that, and I've seen that before, you've seen it on bumper stickers, memes, everything else. <laughs> Uh, it, it has kind of a doom and gloom feel to it, right? And I get that. There's a part of that. But we also need to think doom and bloom, okay? Right? Because it's not just about the end of something, about the start of something. And we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, how Jesus is ushering in this new reality, which is very hope-filled, and this hope changes our lives. So we're actually going to be talking about that today. The timing is really perfect. So good job. Um, do you mind if I take that? I just want to change something on it. Um, you know, I, I just so happen to have this word beginning here. This is so strange. So I'm going to take this. I'm going I'm to change the end is nigh and put the beginning is nigh right over that. So, so Susie, why don't you just take a seat and you can, you can listen along with some of the ways that uh, the beginning is nigh and how that's hopeful, okay? Wow. Good thing I had that post and that sticky note. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Let's put that there. Wow. Such an awkward way to start a sermon. And nevertheless, anyway, so, so the idea with this series, it is called The Beginning is Nigh, right? And how when we think about the return of Jesus, we can think doom and, and gloom, but, and we can lose that hope part of it, how uh, Jesus is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and this hope works backward to lift us forward in certain ways. And it also changes our uh, attitudes and changes how we live. And so we're looking at how does that hope impact us in the here and now, because First and Second Thessalonians is really concerned with this. And so today's focus is this, how do I get personally ready for the return of Jesus? Okay. How do I get personally ready for the return of Jesus? So I frame, frame our, our look at the text with that, so you can kind of have that in mind and thinking, okay, what's happening in the text as we go through? Uh, and it culminates in verses 12 and 13 as we look at it. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up, I encourage you to do so. We're reading from the uh, English Standard Version translation. So this is part three in the series on part one. If you recall, we looked at how um, we looked at how Paul was commending them or complimenting them on having steadfast faith as that church was established in the midst of affliction, of violent opposition, the riots that we are narrated in Acts 17. Last week we looked at that key phrase, uh, verse four in chapter two, that we speak not to please men but to please God who tests our hearts, okay? And so we talked about, okay, wait a second, how can we please God and not just be people pleasers in big situations? Because Christ obviously lived like that, Paul, the early church. And we talked about how, um, you know, honoring God in a big situation is 99% preparation. So how can we honor God in these little situations that we face that we might honor him in those big uh, moments, just like Paul and the Christians in Thessalonica? And so today we're going to get into it, and Paul is continuing to be away from them. He's most likely written this letter from Corinth. Uh, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. Timothy has brought a report back about their faith, so he's writing to encourage them continually. And as we go through the text, you'll see that there's a certain momentum building towards his explanation 
about what will happen with the return of Jesus, which we'll get into in chapters 4 and 5, but he starts to give insights, okay? So here we go, uh, beginning at verse uh, 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So torn away, right? So he's probably referring to... Uh, remember, he was preaching three weeks in the synagogue, and uh, there were riots. He was forced to flee in the midst of violence, torn away from you. We see, desire to see you face to face, verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. So quick pause. So I just want, before I'm moving on, I just want to highlight something that we need to remember, and maybe someone needs um, the reminder of this, that Satan is real. Satan is a real evil being in the world. Jesus in John 8 calls him the father of lies. His workers, evil spirits, demons, they go by various names. And what we notice here is that Paul is saying that he's trying to return to them, to give them counsel, to show them love, to give them help. And Satan is hindering him. So, so, so Satan is fighting against Paul. And the word Satan literally means the adversary. The adversary. And so a couple of things. First of all, Satan is trying to hinder Paul because Paul is doing God's work and he is doing it, by the way, robustly. And so when we are doing the work of God, when we are honoring God proactively in the world in the footsteps of the risen Jesus, expect resistance, expect the adversary. So often in the Christian life we think, yeah, forgiveness, blessing, love, purpose, all these things, yes, and affliction and resistance. No, Christ is greater but resistance and challenge is a part of the journey. John Chrysostom, one of the great church fathers, says, even if the devil hinders you 10,000 times, never give up. And so Paul doesn't give up. He faces the adversary, but it never totally thwarts him, okay? Even if temporarily it might change his plans. Uh, there's a great book on spiritual warfare by Neil Anderson and Timothy Warner. Uh, and in that they say this, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, the difference between military warfare and spiritual warfare is that we are always engaged in spiritual warfare whether we realize it or not. So in military warfare, you're putting on you know, certain clothes and, and, and armor and everything else, and there's a plan and there's a commander that you can see in here. And so you know when you are or are not in battle, perhaps more overtly. Spiritual warfare is different because we can't see things in quite the same way. We feel that, oh, there's times when we're really not engaged in spiritual battle. Not so. We are engaged in spiritual battle. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So here he's saying very nice things about them. Um, you know, you, it's as if their steadfast faith is going to be a, kind of like a trophy to Paul and his associates when, when Jesus returns. Kind of a sign of their achievement for their own work and toil. I um, also just want to highlight, um, notice how in verse 19 it says, you know, before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Um, so in Greek, the word here is parousia, and I know some of you have read a lot about the second coming or the return of Jesus, and so that word parousia might be familiar to you because it's come up in books. And the reason I highlight it here is because it means presence or coming, the appearance of Jesus, clearly referring to his second coming. And now this is a word which was largely used in, 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 the, in the Greek-speaking world, and it really referred to what was often used as, as something to describe a royal visit. So royalty coming. So think of like a royal visit, right? Uh, there's anticipation, there's preparation, there's majesty, there's all these types of things. And so that word is used specifically to conjure some of these same ideas as we think about the ultimate royal visit 
in the person of King Jesus, okay? Chapter 3, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you or encourage you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. There it is again. Destined for love, forgiveness, being chosen by God, absolutely, and for affliction. It comes up time and time again. Verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And it's like he says, we told you about this. You are going to suffer affliction. There will be conflict as you follow Jesus in the world. Why are you surprised by it? We need the reminder as well today how often we come into some massive problem. We think there's some dark challenge in our lives and God must be against me. Maybe it's not God who's against you. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, which is an allusion to the adversary, Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, remember how Timothy went to visit because Paul couldn't physically go. He's brought back a report about their faith to Paul probably in, in Corinth. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always Remember us kindly as long, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's as if here the meaning is um, because of your faith, it's like giving us new life. Okay, that's the idea. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. All right, so maybe there's something lacking. He, they're new in the faith. He still has to instruct them. Verse 11. Now, now something changes, okay? There's a bit of a tone change that occurs, and he moves into prayer mode. And so as we go through this prayer, this is kind of our key verses that we're going to focus on today. Verses 11, 12, 13. I'm going to read it through. I'm explain technically something that's going on at the start and then at the end. We're going to focus in on two key words which are about preparedness for the return of Jesus. Okay? So here we go, verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that, there's the purpose statement, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Okay, so the first thing in verse 11, uh, note, I just want you to notice that he's praying to God the Father and to Jesus. And we need to remember that. When you start to look for the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, and you realize all the different shapes and forms it takes, it's all over the place. Okay, so this is early. so the Thessalonian church is established less than 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So we just need to say that this is another one of those places. They were reminded about how Jesus is alive, interceding for his people at the right hand of his heavenly Father. Paul prays to the Lord, he does so to the Father and to the Son. That's interesting. So we hear overtly about the intercession of Jesus for us in places like Romans 8, but here it's more overt. And then lastly, in verse 13, the other technical thing I wanted to mention is it talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, what in the world is that about? So you notice that as, as we get further along in the letter, right, more and more details start to come out. What, what is this going to be like? Okay, we've 
heard about the word parousia. We've just been told some things about our posture, how we should be living when he returns. And here we're given another detail. The floodgates are really going to open in chapters 4 and 5, but with all his saints. What does that mean? So in the New Testament, uh, and the word here is, just means holy ones. And so probably it refers to believers who have died in the faith already and to angels. Now, why do we think that? Well, this could be an allusion to a part of Zechariah 14, um, <clears throat> but later he will talk about people who have died in the faith and their presence. Uh, but also, speaking about his own return in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the role of angels. And so my sense here is we are being told that there is going to be people who have died in the faith and an angelic presence which is huge and powerful. It will make any royal visit on earth seem like nothing. It's going to be so huge and massive. Okay, so he's, he's inviting our minds to, to be high and to be thinking of the, the grand majesty of, of what is going on here. All right, so that brings us to that um, end of uh, verse 13. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what I want to do is I want to focus on uh, a couple of key things that are happening in the text, right? Okay, so here's, here's what we just read. May the Lord make you, and I've underlined something, increase and abound in love. And we're going to define that term. For one another and for all, as we do for you. So that love is patterned on the example that I've already shared. So that, that's a purpose statement. Why? Well, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That's the goal for your hearts, that inner part of you, to be established blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So that idea of Jesus, his coming, is supposed to go backwards and motivate us to act in a way that is loving so that our hearts are established in holiness. So what I want to do is highlight a couple of those words and their meanings. Okay. First of all, love. As this is a word that's used and abused and misused and everything else. And so we need to look at what does the New Testament specifically say about what it means to love. Okay, And I think as you go through the passages, this is kind of a summary statement. To love someone means acknowledging that they are made in the image of God and pursuing God's best for them. So everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone. That traces back to that statement in Genesis 1.27. Everyone's made in the image of God. Therefore, every single person on earth, and there's a comprehensive statement in Genesis 1, every single person on earth has um, value and worth and are due respect because they bear the image of their maker. Okay? Your friend is made in the image of God. Your spouse is made in the image of God. Your kids, uh, that person at work who annoys you, is made in the image of God. A child pornographer is made in the image of God. A murderer is made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. And this, this feeds into what Christ teaches us about loving other people, our neighbors, and even our enemies. Okay, So it traces back to there. You're not going to agree with everybody, and people are going to engage in sin and a whole bunch of other things, but they are due that love and respect because it traces back to the fact that they are made in the image of God. Secondly, part of that definition is made in the image of God, so we want to seek God's best for them or pursue God's best for that person. Notice what I didn't say. It's not a warm, cozy feeling. You can love someone and still not like them. When we love, I'm seeking proactively, it's a verb, seeking God's best for someone. Sometimes it's not what they think is best for them. It's seeking God's best for them, and what's best for them, of course, is what we learn about in his word, okay? Uh, there was a, a tornado that went through Lafayette, Tennessee, and a newspaper was interviewing some of the local volunteers and uh, <clears throat> said, you know, why, why are you doing this? And, you know, 
tornadoes can be horrible. We've had some here in town, of course, and, and so devastating in many ways. And I know some of you have been profoundly affected uh, by some of that. But these volunteers, here's, here's what they said motivated them. We want to be God with skin on. It's a good way of putting it. Now, you can't stretch the analogy too far. No one's God. Only God is God, right? Uh, but I love that, how the fact that if they were going to actually love their neighbors, they had to be proactive and do something about it. Okay? So that's love. Second word in there that we're going to define is holiness. Holiness, what does it mean? To be holy is to be set apart for a special godly purpose. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart for a special godly purpose. As I've said before, camouflage is great for hunting, not for discipleship. Camouflage, blending in, is good for a variety of things, hunting certainly, but not for discipleship. Sometimes we're going to seem like other people, many times we are not. Okay, and so we need to reclaim this idea of holiness. Okay, so that said, how do we apply some of these insights to our lives as we think about personally preparing for the return of Jesus? Well, uh, you've all seen that bumper sticker, remember that? Uh, Jesus is coming, look busy, right? Um, it's as if it's like Jesus is coming, like, oh, something's happening all over the world, this is crazy, this must be that thing that, that people talk about in the Bible, the return of Jesus, and you get out there and you start reading your Bible, you can't fake it, Right? Jesus is going to know. You can't fake it. But what I do like about that statement, Jesus is coming, look busy, is it reminds us that we, we are supposed to be doing something when he returns. Now, based on what I'm about to say, faith is the bedrock to all of it. Faith is presumed. Faith in Jesus, okay? So for Christians, though, how, what posture are we to assume when he comes? Okay. Well, the idea is that holiness is readiness. And if I was to summarize everything I'm about to say and apply to our lives based on these verses from 1 Thessalonians, it is that holiness is readiness. Say it with me. Holiness is readiness. Say it again. Holiness is readiness. Now, this isn't the only places this comes up. The apostle, 2 Peter 3, verses 11 and 12. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You were to live holy and godly lives as you were to look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So to this end, and this is going to be our focus, we need to reclaim the idea of holiness. And why do we need to reclaim the idea of holiness? Because it has been trampled on both inside and outside of the church. Holier than thou, oh, that person thinks they're so holy. And because we don't want to seem better than everybody else, you know, like, okay, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm not holier than everybody else. What does holiness mean and how are we to apply it to our lives to reclaim this in a culture and at a time when inside and outside of the church, we've trampled all over it. So we need to do four things. We need to stress four things. And the first thing we need to do is know the distinction between your holy status and your growth in holiness. Two different things, okay? You need to know the distinction between your holy status and your growth in holiness. Let's look at the first, your holy status. Hebrews 10.10, 10, we, will we, uh, sorry, we have been given, we have been sanctified been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. So that means in Christ, if you're in Christ as one of his followers, you have a holy status. That is who you are, okay? You've been given that because of who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. You have this holy status. You are set apart as you appear before God. And the righteousness and the holiness and the goodness of Jesus is credited to you. You are holy. That is your status, but the other part of that, part B, is your growth in holiness. And so we are told 
in scriptures in 1 Peter 1.16 and elsewhere. Be holy because I am holy, says the Lord God. Be holy for I am holy. Since God is holy and we want to be like him, we are to grow in holiness. Right? And so when you become a Christian, you have this holy status before God. We are also endeavoring to grow in holiness. So the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, comes to dwell within his people, and we are starting to mature and grow in Christ-likeness. Some people might grow fast, some people might grow slow, but it occurs. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. How do we imitate and live out the forgiveness, grace, holiness, truth of Jesus? This is growth in holiness. Okay, and so we're talking here about that second kind of holiness when we talk about this, okay? Now, perhaps an illustration will help you. Let's say you, get, you play baseball and you get chosen and you become on the roster of the Toronto Blue Jays. Amazing. Okay, that's a great opportunity. You're on the team. You have a jersey. You have a spot. You play left field. Good for you. Some days you play great. Some days you play poorly. Uh, but you're on the team, and nothing's going to change that. Okay, you're on the roster. That's like that category A. That's your holy status. You're on the team. Now, your growth in holiness would play out like this in the illustration. You play, and the more you play, the better you're going to get. You go to batting practice. You listen to the manager, everything else. And you are improving as a player. You are growing. And so to bring it back to our original statement, you are growing in holiness. And that's what we are thinking about here. Now, the illustration breaks down a little bit because some people can think, well, you play really poorly. You're off the team. Not so here. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, they may stumble, they may struggle, they may have ups and downs, but he will bring you to the day of completion. You are on the team of Christ. Your holy status is not in doubt. You may struggle, you may have a lot of ways to go, and I certainly do, but your holy status is not in doubt. When you struggle, when you fall asleep drunk, when you... Find yourself in sexual sin. When you utter words that would make a sailor look like a novice, when you do whatever else, when you let your family down, you are still holy because of your status. And Christ has put you on the team. Okay? Number two, embrace being different. A difference or set-apartness is a part of what it means to be holy. Now, for a long time, Christians in this context in Canada could kind of blend in, and it was maybe a certain kind of Christianity that we can debate. But a lot of people identified as Christians, so you look at the census data, so many people did, and a lot of people still do, but you know, only between 5 and 10% of Christians are in church on a Sunday. Um, sorry, 5, 5 to 10% of Canadians are in church on a Sunday. Um, and it was, it was considered to be noble. Hey, you're a Christian? Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Good for you. Right uh, today, that's increasingly not the case. Um, you know, some people have second thoughts about whether or not they should put their Christian volunteering on their, you know, resume, uh, because of how Christians are increasingly looked at in this world. And so the times are changing, but you know what? That's okay. That's okay. We need to be more committed to following Christ than the crowd. Okay, holiness, distinctness, set apartness. We need to be more committed to following Christ than the crowd. It's a mental switch you need to hit. Well, so-and-so is different. Yeah, that's okay. So-and-so is, is kind of doing things. They're doing so respectfully, but they, they think some different things. They act in a, they have a different way of life. Yeah, that's okay. Third, 
<clears throat> proactively seek God's best for others. Now, this ties into what we're talking about with love, right? Love and holiness is our posture at the return of Jesus, built on a foundation of faith. So we are proactively seeking God's best for others. Now, <clears throat> the reason it's important to highlight this is because when we put love and holiness together, we can think, okay, we can think holiness is about turning inward. It's my personal spiritual status and disposition before the Lord my God, and it really has little to do with how I live and act and, and, and interact in my relationships with the world. Uh, not so. This tells us otherwise. It's tempting to turn inward. Sometimes you turn the TV on or, you know, on your social media feed or whatever, and you look at it and you're like, man, I want to just get out of here. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. I'm like, some days I'm like, I just want to take my family and I'm going to build a cabin and it's going to be out in the woods or on the side of a mountain. It'll be great if we just avoid this junk. But God actually tells us that we are to engage with the world God loves, not disengage with the world God loves. It's engagement, not disengagement. Love outpoured is the ripple of personal holiness. I think we need to reclaim that today. Love outpoured, as we acknowledge that other people are made in the image of God, even people with whom we disagree, and we want to seek God's best for them. Love outpoured is the ripple of personal holiness. If you are growing in personal holiness, love will manifest in your life. It's not an if, it's a how and when. Okay? This also reveals something about the character of God, right? We want to seize opportunities. We want to be God with skin on. So think, if this is our posture at the return of Jesus... And he's coming, our living like this will communicate to other people what the character of God is like. This is, this is the God for whom they wait. This is, this is God, and he's, he, he's coming. Not only is this an opportunity for other people to learn something about the God we serve, but also we are to be living foretastes of what Jesus is bringing, this new reality. So if he's going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth, it will be a place of 100% perfect love. It will be a place of 100% perfect holiness. Therefore, we are acting now like a movie preview, living, breathing, about that reality that is to come. Fourth and finally, choose to pursue holiness. We need to reclaim this word. It's not a bad word. Think about how central holiness is, the character, is to the character of God, my friends. Think of this. In the Old Testament times, in the Jerusalem temple, um, <clears throat> the high priest would go into this room once a year, the Day of Atonement, offer sacrifices for the people of the nation. That place was called, what? The Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies. <clears throat> I forget the reference, so I can't cite it, but someone once did this research. They looked through the entire Bible. How, you know, how is God mostly described. There's so many different words and adjectives and used to describe God. The one that is used the most is holy. Holy, holy, holy. In the divine throne room, as I said in the opening prayer, uh, Revelation 4 verse 8, there's these creatures and then they've got six wings and they've got eyes all over their body and they're night and day, never stop. They're proclaiming and praising and worshiping God. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God the Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stop. Holy, 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 the Lord God, who was and is to, is to come. That's all the time. Are you having a bad day? Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You're having a great day. Holy, holy, it's always going on. Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Times of world war, they're there proclaiming, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Times of peace, holy, holy, holy. You get it. 
When you become a Christian, God himself and his spirit comes to live within you and work through you. What does the name God gives to his spirit, which is his person, power, and presence in the here and now, living in his believers, how does he use to describe that spirit? Holy. The Holy Spirit. So I simply ask you to ponder, how are you choosing to pursue holiness? And maybe you're doing some things that are great. That's good. We want to be proactively growing in holiness, that second category, right? But if not, maybe you need to think, okay, wait a second. There are some things I need to start doing because I've neglected this. So decisions, habits, pathways that you choose, if they are holy, will honor God, will be consistent with Scripture, will encourage Christ-likeness, and will be a blessing to other people. So recap. First, know the distinction between, A, your holy status and your growth in holiness. Second, embrace being different. You need to embrace being different. Third, proactively seek God's best for others, as we love, right? Fourth, choose to pursue holiness. Choose. All right, closing thought. A couple years ago, I was visiting someone, as pastors do, at the hospital. And um, I went into this person's room. They didn't know I was coming. And I went in, and they're there, and they're kind of up in their bed, like the bed is up. And they've got on their lap, they are reading a biblical commentary on the book of Job. And I go in there, is there a better thing you can be doing when the pastor shows up at the hospital (laughs) to be reading a biblical commentary on a book of Job? Maybe... Maybe the Bible is the only other answer that would be better, right? Anyway, I said, oh, what are you reading? She's like, oh, a biblical commentary on the book of Job. And we laughed about it. Like, you couldn't have planned that better. No one knew I was coming. When Jesus comes, when he comes into our lives unannounced, no one knows the day or the hour, will he find us in a posture of holy love? Remember that bumper sticker. Let's change it a bit. Jesus is coming. Be holy. Because holiness is readiness. Say it one more time with me. Holiness is readiness. And that prayer that Paul offered to them, I say, it's my prayer for you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In his name we pray. Amen.